We are continuing with our series dealing with confessional apologetics. We are in the third section. We had an introduction, if you remember, that we dealt with concerning the history of the Reformation in England, how that we got to the point of establishing a system, a confession about what the church ought to believe. And then we talked about the importance and the necessity of creedal systems themselves. Now, we are and have moved into chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is an important chapter. There are only two confessions written in the history of the Reformation that began with the doctrine of God. The last of the great confessions was the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so it is that we are looking at the importance of the very nature of that doctrine as it applies to the rest of the study of God's word in a doctrinal way that develops a system, a coherent system of theology. Well, our sermon text for this series is in 2 Timothy 1, 13 through 14, where the Apostle Paul writes, Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me. That pattern is what we're talking about as we are now looking at this second structure to our leading up to looking at how to biblically defend our faith that is a confession. Now, I would say it's a system of theology, which is true, but we're not looking at it from a systematic theological perspective, but rather the way that the divines develop the confession and how that many systems of theology follows from this very same pattern. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me, says Paul, in faith and love. In faith and in love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Let's look to the Lord our God in prayer. Our Holy Father, we thank you the privilege that we have to once again come to consider the importance that was laid upon the church in developing not only our councils and creeds, but especially the confessions of which we profess to be the exact teaching of the word of God to the best 
of our ability. And while it does not have that inspiration like your word does, nevertheless, it has the authority of the word when it is taught correctly. When we hold fast to the pattern of sound word, to the right doctrine of the word of God. Those doctrines you have given to us from your word, O oh God. And so we ask, bless us, give us insight and wisdom to be able to understand the pattern, its importance and structure, and how that from one chapter flows all other doctrines our faith. Central to all is the pattern of sound words. The words of thy book written by thy spirit through holy men who were moved by your spirit to write that book. That we in faith and love in Christ Maintain that pattern of sound words. We ask now, O oh Father, as we consider these things, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive that which thy spirit and your word would testify to us, to our spirit, to our mind. For we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, we, as I noted, have begun with chapter 1. And we're looking at the first section of chapter 1. Dealing with the Holy Scripture or as the divines wrote, of the Holy Scripture. These are the teachings of the Holy Scripture, or about the Holy Scripture, if you will. Section 1 says this, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, as to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient. Notice that phrasing. Yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God, one, of his will, two, which is necessary unto salvation, three, Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan, 
and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. Now we have begun in our exposition concerning the very nature of this chapter. And I want us to pick up where we left off. And that is we are looking at the last, if you remember, just to kind of tweak your memory at this point, at the ninth point of this first section. The ninth clause, as it were, if you will, which is that the confession says in chapter 1 that it is not sufficient. That is, that innate morality, that innate divinity that we have within us, being created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, man as the image of God, the light of nature, which is what we're talking about, the divine providence of God, the works of creation, all of those things that truly cannot help but allow an individual to see the pattern of God's own handiwork. Yet, it is not in itself sufficient. We say that because in the Garden of Eden, God didn't just put man in the garden and say, well, you have the Imago Dei. You can see my creation. Go figure it out for yourself. He did not do that. From the very beginning, there was also, besides general revelation, which is what we call the Imago Dei, we call it the works of creation and of divine providence, we have what? Special revelation. God speaking to Adam. General revelation is never interpretive without special revelation laying out the pattern of understanding to us. We must have it. It is very important. Here is where specificity is laid down. This is where we understand the real meaning and the purpose of God. And that which he has done in both the aspect of creating a man and his image in the works of creation fulfilling their purpose and in the divine hand of providence that guides us throughout history to the appointed eschatological ends of all things. 
So he says they're not able to give. They are not sufficient. They're not able to give that what? First, knowledge of God. Now we talked about that. That knowledge of God. Now, in a sense, you might say there is an innate knowledge of the divine. That is to say, man has the seed of religion or of deity within him, i.e., a knowledge. He is aware of something greater than himself. But there is no specificity. Is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And how would you know that that isn't the same God of Plato or Aristotle? How do you know it's not one God, five gods, or a thousand gods? How do you know if it's an infant God or a finite God? There is so much that is not revealed in general revelation about God. Yet sufficient to say there is enough to hold us, as we will see, inexcusable. But it cannot reveal the knowledge of God of what his will is, which is necessary unto salvation. Knowledge of God, a knowledge of his will, and those things what? Both being necessary for salvation. And if salvation then necessary for how to worship him, how to obey him and his law, what are the functions of, that he hath laid forth for us in the home, in the church, and in the state, those three great entities that God has ordained for us, those spheres of life that we live in, all having an, overlap, an overlapping understanding, but foundational being the family to the other two. All that is in the will of God. All that is based on having a real knowledge of God. Not a pretend knowledge. Not a non-specific knowledge. Or what we would call in theology a general theism. Which means, well, it's very general, has no specificity, and therefore we are left with the idea of a ultimate being, finite or infinite, we don't know. If it's one, it could be 5,000, we don't know. But to be sure, something greater than us, but that doesn't have to be infinite. It could be just a bigger, finite being. Creation clearly leaves men with insufficient knowledge of God.
it is insufficient to reveal the will of God. The will of God and all things that he has ordered for us, and in particular, dealing with what? Redemption. How God expects us to be redeemed. Apart from the word of God, which is his special revelation to us, we could not know redemption and how it is that God is going to save us. Well, that's where we left off. I don't want to spend too much time there because I want to move us forward. There's a lot to cover, and this chapter is looking longer every time I go back and keep adding to it. So we're only dealing with halfway through section one. Now we've got to move on. The next clause I want you to look at, which I'm simply putting as number 10. Here it says, therefore it pleased the Lord. Why did God do this? People, it's very easily crafted and stated theologically. Why does God do certain things? Unless he tells us in Scripture, we're not going to know. That which belongs to the Lord is the Lord's. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts on many things. Where he reveals them to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Spirit of God searches out the things to be revealed that we may know them. But when we don't have a specific statement about why God did certain things, you can guarantee that theologically this phrase satisfies the heart that wants to serve a sovereign. Pleased the Lord. It pleased the Lord. There are many things that pleases God that He doesn't reveal to me. Oh, I wish He would, because if He did, I could answer every question in life. But He doesn't. Those things which He felt was necessary for us to live by faith. Not a blind faith, but a faith that says, if this pleases God, or if this was the purpose of God, I don't have to understand every aspect of it to believe it. I am simply required to believe the reasoning that God gives to it for me. Nothing else. Some think that if you can't explain everything, then you know nothing. How foolish can that be? God doesn't reveal everything. I don't believe if he did, we could receive everything simply being creatures created in his image. It would be beyond our capacity. 
And thus he gave what was essential and things that dealt with his nature that we could not understand. He simply says, this is the will of God, or this is the purpose of God, or this is what pleased the Lord, or it pleased the Lord to do this. So the divines are bringing that very principle to the front. Thus it pleased the Lord. And now he gets a little bit specific to us. At sundry times. That means portions or many parts of his revelation at various times. This is what we call in theology the progression of revelation. God at various times, in many parts or ways, he brings forth the progression of the knowledge of him, of his will, and of redemption for us in Christ. God revealing himself to man with that specificity. Then he goes on to say, in the next clause, and in diverse manners. That means in many forms, or in the way that he communicates to us in various forms. Dreams, visions, theophanies, or Christophanies, or such things like the burning bush, for an example. He reveals these things. He uses angels to deliver the law of God to us. Now, when we look at this, we understand God is at various times using a specific manner by which he is revealing his will to us. And then... In the 12th clause of section 1 here, he says, to reveal himself. To make himself known. He's making himself known. You see, had the Imago, the Imago Dei, the concept of deity that abides within man, implanted and man as the image of God. The works of creation. Or divine providence. If they would have been sufficient to do this, he would not have needed special revelation. But in order to make himself known, and not leaving man without a specific knowledge or leaving him to simply drown in a generalized theism that at best, at best, what would a generalized conception of God be but idolatry? Idolatry. Because it does not give us those things that need to be known about God. In order for us to fulfill 
the first four commandments of God's holy law. Those moral principles laid down for us on how that we are to worship and honor God in his holiness. And then the duty that we have, having worshiped that God and having received from that God those things that he has commanded us to apply them in the way that we deal with our society. But the true God has got to reveal these things to us. He's got to reveal himself. Not in an exhaustive detail, of course not, but in true details that man can know. Those things were sure essential for him in order to worship, to serve him, and to honor him, and not some idol. And of his creation and of his providence, it speaks how everything has a purpose. Everything comes to an exact end. That was decreed before the foundation of the world. As we are told in the scripture, God hath ordained the end from the beginning and the beginning to the end. All things are held together by the power of his word. Now he goes on to the 13th clause here. And to declare that his will, using those dreams, visions, angels, written decorations that are from the mind of God, to man that is his means of communicating. He's speaking to man in rational propositions which means that he is giving us an epistemic, or if you will, the knowledge necessary by propositions that do reveal clearly to man what he is to believe. Rightly. It's not having faith. You know, the Catholic Catechism that we looked at some years back ago says, well, you know, just if a people have a faith, no matter if it's a misdirected faith, the fact that they had faith, God will in the end treat them as if that faith had been used properly because their concept, from the time of Pelagius as it develops in the history of the church through semi-Pelagianism and even aspects of free willism today in Protestant churches that is still aspects of Roman Catholicism. That part of our church hasn't yet dealt with the problems of Rome completely. But Rome itself saying, you know what? The substance of salvation is faith. Man's faith, it is not. It is Christ. Christ, as he is revealed and 
light of the true Godhead and what his purpose was, the meaning of life, and the end to which he will bring all things. Thus, we have God communicating, revealing himself to man that he can know, really know. Believe the things that God says we are to believe. Faith being that instrument that will lead us to Christ. But it is not the substance. That is an existentialistic philosophy that is of the world. And as I told you many times before, it differs nothing than the very nature of the book on the Wizard of Oz. If you remember, as they were seeking out the wizard to ask for certain things, they come to find out he's simply a man. He is not real. But yet they believed enough that they wanted the change that they got. The change. That's existentialism. Each seeking a special thing, each being able to receive it itself. That's the concept of saying, if you believe that you believe, you'll be saved. I got news for you. The devils believe and tremble doesn't get them saved. Because belief isn't. It is not salvation. Christ alone is the substance of real salvation for us. And thus he says it is to declare his will. And notice if you will here. Unto his church. The 14th clause I want us to look at. It is given to his church. The word of God is written to the church in particular. Not to any one person. No one can say, well, the word of God was written and I'm the one who is to be the interpreter. No, it's the church of Jesus Christ. They're to make pronouncements upon it. The church as a whole is given to the responsibility of studying and expounding the word of God developing the formulas in order to write down what are those patterns of sound words that we are deriving from the teaching of Scripture. Because the Apostle Paul says to us that the church is what? The pillar and the ground. True. That is to say that word of God has been given to the church to establish it and to propagate it in the fact that it is the one who holds the key to the truth. Well, the world could not hold the key. They don't even know God. Not in the way that's necessary for salvation. They can't interpret the word of God. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? It is what? Spiritually discerned. The common man, the man without Christ, the unregenerate man cannot know the meaning of those things. 
Oh, he can read the book. Oh, he can recite some of the historical narrative and data. But you see, ethnically, he does not embrace it. He doesn't believe that it's true. But the church embraces God's revelation as being the very foundation and truth upon which Christ's church is going to be built. Christ himself, incarnate Son of God, and the Word is Christ being inscripturated as the truth for the church to lead us in all those things. Here, Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living of God, the pillar and the ground of truth. The church of Jesus Christ holds forth the truth to be seen and to be read as pillars that bear inscriptions upon them. These pillars which supports and they maintain the truth of God as every true church of Jesus Christ does so long as it remains a true church is teaching these patterns of sound words. That's how we know that a church is either a true church or not a true church. My friends, doctrine, teaching, that's all we're talking about. The word doctrine means teaching. Doctrine matters in both the understanding of God, of what he has revealed to us, of his son redemption, how we ought to live out our life within the kingdom of God according to the word that has been given to us and subscribes the way we ought to live. The church as the pillar and ground of truth. But a church is only as true as we are in the purity of dealing with the word. This is why we get that ugly statement against us. And I've heard it so many times over the years. You know the problem with them over there, the Christ Presbyterianism. You know what their problem is? They're so hung up on doctrine. Uh, yeah. I'm hung up on the word of God. That's what it means. I'm hung up on what God said. I believe this. If I don't do what he said, I won't be counted among the number in heaven. He is very clear on that. And to rebel against him, he says, is the same as witchcraft. Don't want to go down that road. That's a bad road. Want to know the truth. Why? Because it reveals to me God, his will, and salvation, and the way I am to walk as one who is a child of God. Not just theory. We're not just studying theology to be able to say we can put 
a theory together that sounds good. But it's a theory that requires practical outcome of life. So there is what we call the orthodoxy, right teaching, and then the orthopraxy, which is the right practice. Implementing what these things have taught us into life. Be it up to the family, be it to the church, be it to the state. God's word is so essential that without it, the family, the church, and the state could not get it right if they try. No matter how sincere, they'll end up being wrong. That's the importance of knowing the word of God. Ministers of the gospel are even called in the scripture. In Galatians, for example, 2.9, that they are gifted with greater propriety in the church itself, wherein the church before was called a house. In Galatians 2.9, we're told this by Paul. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, those who are holding up the house perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Though it may be better to your understanding it concerning Christ as incarnate, the great mystery of godliness, who is the ground and foundation of the church and all believers. So he is the foundation of what? All true doctrine. How do we derive that principle? It's from the word. And this is particularly true Concerning the very nature of Christ himself in being truly God and truly man. He couldn't have known that without the word of God. The pillar and ground of truth. The church. God's plan. You know, people run around and they are not members of the church. And oh, you know, I'm a believer, but I just don't believe in organized religion. Have bad news. You're rejecting the very bride of Christ and its authority to serve you and minister to you and to discipline you when necessary. And you're making this huge statement, I am of Christ, but I hate his bride. I don't like the way she's to function. Now, she isn't allowed to function in the way she wants to. She's got to follow the word. The divines are saying the church 
That is so essential to all of this. You're going to advance the kingdom. How do you do it? Through the gospel being preached and the church being established and the purity of the church and the godliness of the church. You must be part of and under its authority and discipline. Well, he goes on to verse 15 here, the divine say, and afterwards, for the better preserving. What is being preserved is the original meaning by testimony of the Spirit who reveals the nature and being of God and of his will to us. We don't have the original manuscripts which is why we're always seeking to try to find every manuscript. We're trying to make comparisons. We're trying to, as exactly as we can, construct the Greek New Testament in a way that we believe clearly not only enforces our doctrine, which we believe we have 99% of it right, but so that not having the originals to compare with, we are working and striving to show what and how the word of God we believe was originally constructed and given by God through the spirit to holy men moved who were chosen by God. Thus the doctrine of preservation is the teaching that God's word has been preserved and its original meaning has been kept intact and we are not commanded to demonstrate it by any means, but rather to believe God's promise, which is conferred by the Spirit concerning his special revelation to man. And thus, the divines use that concept of phrasing. God's Spirit bearing witness with our spirit, with the word of God, but that's true. Thus God is always active in that aspect of redemption to us. Constantly showing us, teaching us. It's not as if we've simply been called and that's the end of the calling and the end of the work of the Spirit and oh yeah, he indwells you, but you know what? Your job is to go out and interpret the No, you, you got to go read the word. But even in your interpretation of the word, you must have the spirit at work in you. Ask yourself that question. Is the spirit of God at work in me? This is so important to the church. God has preserved his word and he bears witness, his spirit with our witness according to the word. This is the truth of God. We are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God to lead us in all truth. Quit leaning to man's reason apart from the Spirit of God. Oh, reason's important. If we couldn't reason, we wouldn't understand it. what I'm pointing out to you is that we are dependent upon the Spirit of God at all times. 
when we come to the word to study it. We're asking God, declare your truth, reveal it to us, that we can know what you want of us. And even when we have much uniformity, there is always areas of disagreement, isn't there? That shows you the fallibility of man, even when he's regenerate. There will be differences of opinion. But they are not essential. They don't shipwreck the faith. They don't upset the balance of teaching. It could be a negative or a positive effect or outlook concerning all things in the church, but it isn't the end of faith and the church as we know it. We simply are not <coughs> excuse me, willing to give ourselves over to the idea that the Bible is only the word of God if we can prove through some concocting theory of textual autographs which we simply can say, well, we have this and we think we can try to make the dots connect and that's why we can trust God. And you know what? I trust God because he says, I will testify to the truth to you by the Spirit as he leads you in the truth. Thus, God's a preserver of his word. Even in translation. Does that mean all translations are good? Of course not. But even when we do have well-designed and worked-out translations, you're going to have variations. Yet, the basic principle of truth still remains that truth God preserves for us. And that's what we're to believe. And that's what we're to trust. The Spirit of God working in us. And it's not too weird or charismatic to say we should trust the Spirit of God. We must be trusting God's Spirit. Then he says in or they say, in the 16th clause, and the propagating of the truth. Promoting the word, which is called the truth of God, which is that which is what? Preserved and kept intact. It is God's word alone, which is truth. Nothing else is true. Truth is what God says. Now, we say hermeneutically, if it has specific analogy, that means it's specifically stated in Scripture. We know the truth. We know by general analogy, if it's implied, but yet not specifically stated, it's truth. Or by extrapolation, by good and necessary reason. That is logical deduction from those things that are said and taught. We can know we have the truth of God. And what was the purpose of this establishment of the truth 
that God has given to us in the word that is designed to reveal to us God, his will, and uh, the way of salvation. Well, we're told in the next clause, the 17th, and for the more sure establishment. Here the divines meant permanently enacting the word written as a means of settling the doctrinal truth propositionally given and preserved in writing for us. Special revelation. Yes, comparing the various textual claims, determining the variances, and reconciling the various texts into a common understanding of those basic propositional truths of God for the more sure establishment. The establishment being the truth being foundational to our understanding of God, of his will, and of Christ and salvation. Of how we are to understand those things are carried out into life every day that we the word of God, not the word of man, the word of God, the word of God written for us, the word of God that establishes us in his truth. Then the 18th clause says, and the comfort of the church. The word of God was given for what reason? To establish it, to make sure it is secure, foundational, that it has a way of seeing and reading and going forth and doing what God has commanded of it. And then also for what? The comfort of the church. Leaving a person's grief, leaving their stress because the scripture teaches us to whom we are to trust and believe. It is a comfort to us. We can rest upon these promises and especially trusting a sovereign God who does all things well, who never makes a mistake who redeems men from sin. And when he says to us, believe and you shall be saved, he's talking about that system of sandwich. Believe the promises that God has given about his son. Embrace that son in your life. Walk in the fruits of the Spirit in those good works that Paul says were ordained for us in life. Herein is where we receive that promise of comfort. That's why the word was so necessary. It's the word that discerns all these things with the work of the Spirit. You see, too often we get caught up in saying, I'm not sure what to do in life. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be thinking about these things in life. 
and we get distressed and we get worried. But the reality is God has not only given a word, but a spirit that indwells us. His spirit, the Holy Spirit. And when we go to his word, he teaches us and he comforts us. He establishes, he literally roots us in the faith. Those things were to believe. And they come forth in the word and it says, here's what God says about these things. Why do you not trust what God says? And the spirit of God moves in you and he warms the inward part of your being that says, I must trust God. I must put my faith in God. But it's not a blind faith. It is a faith based on the revelation of the word of the living God. It's not blind. It's not guessing. It's knowledgeable truth. Truth capable of being discerned because of the spirit who lives in you. If you truly be in Christ. Well, I'm quickly running out of time here, but let me get through the end of this. Then he says in 19, against the corruption of the flesh, man's sin or corruption prevents us even after salvation. It constantly is seeking to what? Prevent us from believing God. It is seeking constantly to include self-deception concerning religious matters of life, of faith, and of practice. So the word is what? For what? To help us against the corruption of the flesh. As a believer, you're still capable of being deceived on many things. Many days you try to walk by sight rather than by faith. Trusting in the word of God. Letting the spirit of God move through you to assure you you're on sound, solid rock. That God takes care of all things well. He doesn't make mistakes. And you know what? When you lay down at night, you can go to sleep. You know why? God never sleeps. And there's no sense in two of you staying awake all night. You go to sleep knowing there ain't nothing going to overcome me that God has not in his wisdom set forth in his plan from eternity. God does it well. And I must trust him. And thus the flesh will try. Even that remnant of sin that you have left after being redeemed. It will try to deceive you. It will try to bankrupt your faith. But the word is given by the spirit of God to contend with your spirit. That when you have believed, embraced, 
these things of God, and especially of his son, Jesus Christ, you can take it, as it were, to the bank. It's a sure thing. He will give you the security that's necessary. And then he says, against the malice of Satan. Malice is to seek to cause harm without legal, that is the right, justification for such an action. Satan working deceptively in the world and often in the church visible to deceive if it were even possible the elect. <coughs> Excuse me. And we're told in Mark 13.22 for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect. So we have to be very careful that we do not underestimate the malice of Satan. He's crafty. That's not that's the reason why we call him Slufer. By the way, his name isn't really Lucifer. That was a misunderstanding. And somebody had jumped on the bandwagon. Lucifer worship, that's the worship of Satan. No, it isn't. It's a foolish misunderstanding of the Old Testament. But Satan is Slufa. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver. And one of the things that he likes to do is try to deceive. If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyr, back in the old days, John Fox recorded this story of a believer who was locked in a cell and he was praying and asking God to deliver him either unto his eternal reward or free him from his bondage by the empire of Rome. When out of the darkness appeared a form, a being looked like man. And he said to him, my son, come, bow at my feet, worship me. I am your Christ. And he said, he started to get up and he thought, wait a minute. He said, show me your hands and your feet. And show me your side. And he said, the spirit cursed him and he left. Satan can appear as an angel of light. Happens all the time in the church. Why do you think the churches have so much problems? They underestimate Satan. Somehow they think we're smarter than Satan. No, you're not. That's why you need the word of God. God gives you the word. It's true. Satan gives it. You don't know what truth is. Because he's the father of lies. Don't buy into Satan's deception. That's why you got to read the word. It's not just for the coffee table. It's not just the place to put a cup of coffee on it. Like it's a coaster. What's that under your coffee? Oh, it's my Bible. It's my new coffee coaster. The Bible is meant to be read, to be devoured as the word of the living God, to put within our hearts and our minds. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> to call upon its truth when Satan would try to deceive us. And he'll try to deceive you. Whether it is false doctrine, whether it is false preachers, and we've got a lot of them today. Whether it is whatever you may believe, a false writer, anything to get you away from the word and thinking what God has said is important for you to do as a Christian in your life. And then the divine said in the 21st clause, and of the world. That moral stage of human life as a whole, a world and life system or ideology. Not of God, nor of the way of Christ, but of the way of the world. You know how we've adopted so many things from our culture into our life, into our churches, and we've tried to Christianize it. And make it seem okay. I remind you. Seven churches of Revelation. That was one of the major complaints. You're adopting the idolatrous things of this world. Blending into the church. And some of you have already lost your faith. Oh, you have the name Christian written over the door of the church. But believe me, when you walk in, you find out it's anything but Christian. And I simply say to you, where are those seven churches today? They didn't heed their Savior's commands. The world, the moral stage of life, the ideology of men, Look how many people have bought in to so much of things that we know violate the law of God. For example, we talked about communism and socialism and all of these things that are being practiced, all of the critical theory things that were eventually developed out of Hegel's system into Marx. And so many churches have adopted it into their own Life. They're adopting the world and not the truth of God. Well, he says in 22, or the 22nd clause here, to commit the same holy unto writing. All of the many portions and the various manners of revealing God himself to you of his will and the salvation has been put to writing. And then they said in verse 23, what? To which maketh the Holy Scripture to be what? Most necessary. You understand it? Your own sinful reflection in life, self-destruction, the malice of Satan, the world ideologies, they're all out there. What keeps you from falling off the wagon? Proverbially speaking. It's the written word. 
they are most necessary to keep you from falling off. To ensure that the meaning and the purpose of God revealing himself to man is absolutely correct. The divines are arguing not that the church will be lost in the conveyance or paraphrasing from men to men in each generation. Things that they have picked up and added to the word. But rather the word constantly being revealed Regeneration, for, I mean generation to generation. The preserving of its truth. The teaching of that to men. So important. That written word, most necessary, without which they could not know the truth, but with the writing of the Holy Scripture, can safeguard both the truth of God They can safeguard itself against the writings and revelations of men, doctrines of men that come forth in this life that are not of Christ. Nor does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that what they have written are true because what they say is not true to the word of the living God. Then finally he comes down are the divines do in saying the former ways of God revealing his will to his people being now ceased. The diversity in portions authoritatively that were revealed in the various ways and means have now ceased because the scripture has been recorded by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit of God to record it. Thus rendering those formal ways, dreams, visions, etc. Unnecessary to continue. Their use since those means or methods have ceased. That is the cessation of receiving additional knowledge from God outside of the scripture. Or including addition to the scripture. Now that the revelation of God's mind and will are given in writing. They are authoritatively given by God to govern man's life, faith, and practice. He needs nothing else. You don't need new visions. You don't need new dreams. You don't need new revelations. Why? What would the Spirit of God add that God has not intended to will for you to know already? And the Spirit of God is not going to give you more than what God does because he's the person of the Godhead. They all think alike. Psalm 138.2 says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above what? All your name. Think about it. Nothing is greater or more higher than the word of God. Not even God's name. Because God said, my word is more higher than my name. It's 
see the emphasis God puts on his word? Why? It deals with the veracity of a God in his integrity and in his holiness. Being set aside from every other creature, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Nothing ever changes with God. It's forever established, as it were, in stone. He will not change. He cannot change. The word I have lifted above my own name. We talk about it. The Jews, remember how they used to say, there are just some names of God you cannot speak. God said, my word, I've lifted above my name. Here's the truth. Here's the standard by which you must govern your whole life. Everything you believe, everything you do in worship, everything you do in relationship to other people, the way you live out your life day in and day out, you must hold to this word. You must believe this word in order to live this Christian life you've been called into. So I exhort you, don't take lightly the word of God. Just in section one alone, think about it. I think there's ten sections. In one section alone, he has established the very fundamental principle why is this doctrine so important? It is essential to the Christian faith. There is no such thing as Christianity without the word of God. It's the word lifted above his own name. It's the word that gives you foundation. It directs you in your faith, in your life, your practice. It tells you how to live as a Christian personally, as a family, as a church. In the state, what are the right things to do? How to think every minute of every day in your life. How to not be deceived by yourself, nor by Satan, nor by the world. Which is so easily done to the shallow mind. You know, there are things and times you know what I'm talking about. You say, how can people be so gullible? You've heard people get on TV and preach and promise this and that and everything else. And for a thousand dollars, I'll give you this dirty water from the river of Jordan, and it's going to bring miracles to your life. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. That's a good sales scheme. I always came up with the idea that I would have 1,000 knives with the handle from the cross of Christ, which is probably more wood than was on the cross. And if you give me $1,000, I'll give you that. It's really important. I call it the Lorena Bobbitt special, Knife of Christ. It's a scheme. Why are people so caught up in gullible schemes? You want to know why? They don't know the Word of God. They don't trust the Word of God. They don't live in the Word of God. And they buy everything that comes down the pike. They want something more. More than what God 
forgive them. What greater thing can you have than the very revelation of God himself? I do not know what it would be. It is the greatest thing. My word have I exalted above my name. Not under my name, above my own name. And you know God really, you can see in the word, protects his name. How much more does God put emphasis on the word? I say there can be no more. I exhort you, be in the word. You've got to come and know these things. It's not too hard. All of you, if you wanted to, could be great theologians. Just start by learning your shorter catechism. Graduate to the larger. Get into the confession. Study these things. You can know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You'll be free from the world, self-deception, the malice of Satan. Nothing will Shipwreck your faith. Don't get in the word and you're gullible forever. You must be in the word. And I've explained to you why today. Please, study the word. Yeah, it's tough. You gotta really think okay. Spend the time doing it. Never is a minute wasted when you're really in the Word seeking the truth from God. Never. And it will make all the difference in your life. Shall we pray?